Section 59 of Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malachi Orozco. Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Una of the Garden. Part 4. Chapter 7. Thenceforth Eric was a constant visitor at the Marshall House. He soon became a favorite with Thomas and Janet, especially the latter. He liked them both, discovering under all their outward peculiarity sterling worth and fineness of character. Of Neil he saw little. The Italian boy avoided him, or, if they chanced to meet, passed him by with sullen downcast eyes. Eric did not trouble himself much about Neil, but Thomas Marshall bluntly told Una that she must not make such an equal of Neil as she had done. You've been too kind to that lad, lassie, and he's got presumptuous. He must be taught his place. Most of the idyllic hours of Eric's wooing were spent in the old garden. It was a wilderness of roses now, red roses and pink roses and white roses and pale yellow roses, roses full-blown and roses in buds that were sweeter than anything on earth except Una's face. Their petals fell in silken heaps along the old paths or clung to the lush grasses among which Eric lay and dreamed while Una played on her old brown violin. Eric promised himself that when she was his wife, her wonderful gift should be cultivated to the utmost. Her power of expression seemed to deepen and develop every day, growing as her soul grew, taking on new color and richness from her ripening heart. To Eric, the days were all pages in an inspired idyll. He had never dreamed that love could be so mighty, that the world could be so beautiful. All his life was, for the time being, bounded by that garden where he wooed his sweetheart. All other ambitions and plans and hopes were set aside in the pursuit of this one aim, the attainment of which would enhance all others a thousandfold, the loss of which would rob all others of their reason for existence. His own world seemed very far away, and the things of that world forgotten. His father had written him a testy letter on hearing that he had taken the Stillwater School for another year, but running through its testiness was a chord of regret and longing to which Eric's heart responded. He wrote a filial letter in return, promising to come home and be a good boy at the end of the year. I'll go into the business with heart and soul then, Dad, he wrote, but I want to have this one year for myself. It could not long remain a secret in Stillwater that the master was going to the Marshall place on courting thoughts intent. Mrs. Williamson kept her own and Eric's counsel. The Marshalls said nothing, but the secret leaked out, and great was the surprise and gossip and wonder. One or two incautious people ventured to express their opinion of the master's wisdom to the master himself, but they never repeated the experiment. Curiosity was rife. A hundred stories were circulated about Una, greatly exaggerated in the circulation. Wise heads were shaken, and the majority opined that it was a great pity. 
The master was a smart young fellow. It was too bad that he should take up with that queer dumb niece of the marshals who had been brought up in such a heathenish way. They guessed Neil Marshall didn't like it. He seemed to have got dreadful moody and sulky of late. Thus the buzz of comment and gossip ran. Those two in the old garden did not heed it. Una knew nothing of gossip. Stillwater was as much of an unknown world to her as the city of Eric's home. Her thoughts strayed widely in the realm of fancy, but they never wandered out to the little realities that hedged her strange life around. In that life she had blossomed out, a fair, unique thing. There were times when Eric almost regretted that one day he must take her out of her white solitude to a world that, in the last analysis, was only Stillwater on a larger scale, with just the same pettiness of thought and feeling and opinion at the bottom of it. He wished he might keep her to himself forever in that old spruce-hidden garden where the roses fell. One day he indulged himself in the fulfillment of the whim he had formed when Una had told him she thought herself ugly. With Janet's cooperation, a mirror was brought to the house and hung in the parlor. There hasn't been such a thing in the house for twenty years, master, said Janet, looking at it rather dubiously, as if, after all, she distrusted its pearly depth and richly carved frame. I never saw such a big one. I hope it won't make her vain. She is very bonny, but it may not do her any good to know it. It won't harm her, said Eric confidently. When a belief in her ugliness hasn't spoiled a girl, a belief in her beauty won't. Janet did not understand epigrams. I can't think what made her suppose she was so ugly, master. Her mother told her so, said Eric rather bitterly. Ah! Janet shot a quick glance at the picture of her sister. Margaret was a strange woman, master. I suppose she thought her own beauty had been a snare to her. Well, have your own way. You would have it anyway, I think, lad. You are one of those men who always get their own way. Eric went to look for Una and found her in the rose garden. Come down to the house, Una. I have something beautiful there to show you, he said with boyish pleasure shining in his eyes. I want you to go and put on that muslin dress you wore last Sunday. Pin your hair up in the same way you did then. Run along. Don't wait for me. I want to pick some of these lilies. When Eric returned to the house with an armful of the long-stemmed white August lilies that bloomed in the garden, Una was just coming down the steep, narrow staircase with its carpeting of homespun drugget. Her marvelous loveliness, brought out into brilliant relief by the dark woodwork of the dim old hall, almost took away his breath. She wore a trailing, clinging dress of creamy, tinted fabric that had been her mother's. It had not been altered in any respect, for fashion held no sway at the Marshall homestead, and Una thought that the dress left nothing to be desired. Its quaint style suited her admirably. The neck was cut slightly away to show the round white throat, and the sleeves were long, full bishop ones, out of which her beautiful slender hands slipped like flowers from their sheaths. She had crossed her long braids at the back and pinned them about her head like a coronet. A late white rose was fastened low down on the left side. A man has given all other bliss, and all his worldly wealth for this, to waste his whole heart in one kiss upon her perfect lips, quoted Eric in a whisper. Aloud he said, 
hold these lilies on your arm. So, now, give me your hand and shut your eyes. Don't open them until I tell you. He led her into the parlor and up to the mirror. Look, he cried proudly. Una opened her eyes and looked, straight into the mirror where, like a lovely picture in a dark frame, she saw herself reflected. For a moment she was bewildered. Then she realized what it was. The lilies fell from her arms to the floor, and she turned pale. With a low, involuntary cry of delight, she put her hands over her face. Eric pulled them boyishly away. Una, do you think you are ugly now? Look, look, look. Did you ever imagine anything fairer than yourself, dainty Una? She was blushing now and stealing shy glances at the mirror. With a smile, she took her slate and wrote naively, I think I am pleasant to look upon. I cannot tell you how glad I am. It is so dreadful to believe that one is ugly. But why did Mother tell me that I was? I think perhaps she found that beauty was not always a blessing, Una, and thought it wiser not to let you know you possessed it. Come, let us go back to the garden now. The mirror will hang here. It is yours. Don't look into it too often, or Aunt Janet will disapprove. She's afraid it will make you vain. Una gave one of her rare musical laughs, which Eric never heard without the recurrence of the old wonder that she could laugh so when she could not speak. She blew an airy little kiss at her mirrored face and turned from it, smiling. On their way to the garden, they met Neil. He went by them with averted face, but Una shivered and involuntarily drew closer to Eric. I don't understand Neil at all now, she wrote nervously. He is not nice as he used to be, and sometimes he will not answer when I speak to him, and he looks so strangely at me too. Don't mind Neil, said Eric lightly. He is probably sulky because of some things I said to him when I found he had spied on us. That night, before she went to bed, Una stole into the parlor for another glimpse of herself by the light of the dim candle she carried. She was still standing there dreamily when Aunt Janet's grim face appeared in the shadows of the doorway. Are you thinking that you're a bonny lassie? Ay, but remember it is handsome is that handsome does, she said, with grudging admiration. For the girl with her flushed cheeks and star-like eyes was something that even dour Janet Marshall could not look upon unmoved. Una smiled softly. I'll try to remember, she wrote. But, oh, Aunt Janet, I am so glad that I am not ugly. It is not wrong to be glad of that, is it? The older woman's face softened. No, I don't suppose it is, lassie. A comely face is something to be thankful for. The master thinks you are wonderful, bonny, Una, she added, looking keenly at the girl. Una started, and a scarlet blush burned over her face. The expression that flashed into her eyes told Janet Marshall all she wished to know. With a half-sigh, she bade her niece good night and went away. Una ran fleetly upstairs to her dim little room that looked out into the spruces and flung herself on her bed, burying her burning face in her hands. Her aunt's words had revealed to her the secret of her heart. She knew that she loved Eric Murray 
and the knowledge brought with it a strange heartbreak. For was she not dumb? Chapter 8 Eric noticed a change in Una at their next meeting, a change that troubled him. She seemed aloof, abstracted, and almost ill at ease. When he proposed an excursion to the garden, he thought she was reluctant to go. The days that followed convinced him of the change. Something had come between them. Una seemed miles away in spirit. He had a bad week of it, but he determined to put an end to it by plain speaking. One evening in the garden he told her of his love. It was an evening in August, and the garden was in its prime of lavish splendor. Everywhere there were lilies, white lilies, and gorgeous tiger lilies, tawny and crimson-spotted. Una was sitting on the old stone bench where he had first seen her. She had been playing for him, but her music did not please her, and she laid the violin aside with a little frown. Perhaps she was afraid to play afraid that her new emotions might escape her and reveal themselves in the music. It was difficult to prevent this. So long had she been accustomed to pouring out all her feelings unhindered in harmony. The necessity of restraint irked her and made her bow a clumsy thing that no longer obeyed her wishes. More than ever at that instant did she long for speech, speech that would conceal and protect where dangerous silence might betray. In a low voice that trembled with earnestness, Eric told her that he loved her, had loved her, since the first time he had seen her in the old garden. He spoke humbly, but not fearfully, for he believed that she loved him and had little expectation of any rebuff. Una, will you be my wife, he said, taking her hands in his. Una had listened with averted face. At first she had blushed, but now she had grown very pale. When he had finished speaking and was waiting for her answer, she suddenly pulled away her hands and, putting them over her face, burst into tears and noiseless sobs. Una, dearest, have I alarmed you? Surely you knew before that I loved you. Don't you love me? Eric said, putting his arm about her and trying to draw her to him but she shook her head sorrowfully and wrote with compressed lips, Yes, I do love you, but I can never, never marry you because I am dumb. Oh, Una, said Eric, smiling, for he believed his victory won. That doesn't make any difference to me. You know it doesn't, sweetest. If you love me, that is enough. But Una only shook her head again. There was a very determined look on her pale face. She wrote, No, it is not enough. It would be doing you a great wrong to marry you when I cannot speak, and I will not do it because I love you. Your world would think you had done a very foolish thing. I have thought it all over since something Aunt Janet said made me understand, and I know I am doing right. I am sorry I did not understand sooner, before you learned to care so much. Una, darling, don't let such an idle fancy disturb you for a moment. Don't you know that you will make me miserably unhappy all my life if you will not be my wife? No, you think so now and you will feel badly for a time. Then you will go away and you will forget me after a while and then you will see that I was right. I will be very unhappy too, but that is better than spoiling your life. 
do not plead or coax because I will not change my mind. Eric did plead and coax, however, at first patiently and smilingly, as one might argue with a dear foolish child, then with a distracted earnestness when he began to realize that Una meant what she said. It was all in vain. Una grew paler and paler, and her eyes showed suffering. She did not even try to argue with him, but only listened patiently and shook her head. Say what he would, entreat and implore as he might, he could not move her resolution a hair's breadth. Yet he did not despair. He thought her love for him must conquer. He did not understand that it was the very intensity of her love that gave her the strength to resist him. It held her back unflinchingly from doing him what she believed to be a wrong. The next day Eric sought Una again, and renewed his pleadings, but in vain. Nothing he could say was of any avail against her sad determination. When he finally realized that her resolution was not to be shaken, he went in his despair to Janet Marshall. Janet listened to his story with concern and disappointment plainly visible on her face. When he had finished, she shook her head. I'm sorry, master. I hoped for something very different. But if Una says she won't marry you, I'm afraid she will stick to it. But she loves me, cried the young man. And if you and her uncle speak to her, perhaps you can influence her. No, master. It wouldn't be of any use. Una is as determined as her mother was, when once she makes up her mind. She has always been good and obedient, for the most part. But once or twice we have found out there is no moving her if she does resolve upon anything. It is because she thinks so much of you, and she is afraid you would come to repent having married the dumb girl. I can't give her up, said Eric stubbornly. Something must be done. Perhaps her defect can be remedied. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever had her examined by a doctor qualified to pronounce on her case? No, master. We never took it to anyone. When we first began to fear she was never going to talk, Thomas wanted to take her somewhere and have her looked to. But her mother wouldn't hear of it. She said that it was no use, that it was her sin that was visited on her child, and that it would never be taken away. And did you give in weakly to a morbid whim like that? asked Eric impatiently. Master, you didn't know my sister. We had to give in. Nobody could hold out against her. She was a strange woman and a terrible woman in many ways after her trouble. We feared to cross her lest she might go out of her mind. Besides, we didn't think ourselves it would be much use to try to cure Una. It was a sin that made her as she is. Nonsense. Where was there any sin? Your sister thought herself a lawful wife. I'm not meaning that, master. That wasn't where Margaret did the wrong. You don't know the story. I'm going to tell it to you, and you will understand then why Una is dumb, and why it isn't likely there can be anything done for her. Una doesn't know the truth, and you must never tell her. Margaret was a very proud... High-spirited girl, very stubborn too, master. But I would not have you think she was unlovable. She had her faults. She was bright and merry, too, and we all loved her. You know the story of her marriage. Her father was a proud man, and her misfortune cut him to the heart. 
He hadn't been very willing for her to marry Roland Fraser, and when she came home in disgrace, she hadn't set foot over the threshold before he broke out railing at her. He called her a hard name, Master. Oh, he was too hard. Even though he was my father, I must say he was too hard on her, broken-hearted as she was. And he was so sorry for it. The moment it was out of his mouth, he was sorry for it. But the mischief was done. I'll never forget Margaret's face, master. It was full of anger and rebellion and defiance. She clenched her hands and went up to her room without saying a word, all those mad feelings surging in her soul and being held back from speech by her sheer stubborn will. And master, never a word did Margaret say from that day until Una was born, not one word, master. Nothing we could do for her softened her, and we were kind to her master, and never reproached her. But she would not speak to anyone. She just sat in her room, stared at the wall with awful eyes most of the time. Her father implored her to speak and forgive him, but she never gave any sign that she heard him. That's not the worst, master. Father sickened and died. And on his deathbed, he asked Margaret to forgive him and speak one word to him, master. She wouldn't. And yet she wanted to speak, but she wouldn't. Her stubbornness wouldn't let her. Oh, it was hard. Oh, it was hard and dreadful. She saw her father die, and she never spoke the word he prayed for to him. That was her sin, master and for that sin the innocent was punished. After Una was born, Margaret softened and broke through her silence when she felt her baby at her breast. She spoke and wept and was herself again until, until she found that Una was never going to speak. We thought then she would go out of her mind. Indeed, Master, she was never quite right again. But that is the story. Una can't speak because her mother wouldn't. Eric had listened moodily, his chin in his hand and his eyes on the floor. Now he got up and paced restlessly to and fro in the dark spruce-shadowed old kitchen where they were. It's an extraordinary story, he said. It is hard to believe that such could have been the cause of Una's dumbness, I mean... But even if it were so, something may be done for her. At all events, we must try. I have a friend who is a physician. His name is David Baker, and he is a very skillful specialist in throat diseases. I shall have him come here and see Una. Well, have your way, assented Janet. Plainly, she had little faith in the possibility of anything being done for Una but a rosy glow of hope flushed over Una's face when Eric told her what he meant to do. Oh, do you think you can make me speak? she wrote eagerly. I don't know, Una. I hope that he can, and I know he will do all that mortal skill can do. If he can cure you, will you promise to marry me, dearest? She nodded. The grave little motion had the solemnity of a sacred promise. Yes, she wrote. 
when I can speak like other women, I will marry you. End of section 59 Recording by Malachi Orozco